The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is pretty much hope. A culture podcast, and we are talking today about opera. My name is Mark Linson <laughs> So we just want a singing one, huh? Yes. Erica Spires from the Ozarks. And I'm Brian Hurt, and on behalf of all of our listeners without any musical talent, I am conscientiously objecting to the premise of these introductions. Who was our guest today? My name is Sean Spires, and I'm here in the Ozarks, and I do opera. Well, then you should show us. Sing a note. We just went out on a limb there. I haven't sang that aria in, I don't know, 10 years. I don't know if that French was even close to being real. Well, I got a lot of shit during our uh, voice acting podcast that Erica and Mark both sort of went out on a limb and they were doing voices with our professional voice person, D. Bradley Baker, and I, not really being good at voices, bailed on that one also. So now that I've already said I'm not actually singing, I'm, this is going to make all of our non-musical listeners really feel good about their singing voices. <laughs> Are you guys ready for this? This is a lot of build-up. Yes, yes. All right. <clears throat> Middle C. I am the very model of a two-bit culture podcast host. I speak on matters popular both guttural and uppermost. On movies, books, and music, I am pleased to jock and video. And state my bold opinions on those matters mostly trivial. Bravo! I'm am- punching out, everybody. <laughs> Is uh, Gilbert and Sullivan even I'm opera? I know there was a joke in uh, Pretty Woman about it. It's operetta, but yeah, right. for all intents and purposes, yeah. She loved it so much she peed her pants, to which Richard Gere said, she said she loved it more than Pirates of Penzance. So there you go. There's your, there's your Pirates of Penzance. <laughs> yeah, we actually grew up listening to and performing a lot of Gilbert and Sullivan. That was some of the first... Again, I think just because we have access to something, we would not have... Unless we would have seen something, and it was that film. What was it, 1980, 1981? Oh, the Kevin Klein. Right. That seems about right. I mean, even growing up in a musical family, movies were still the vehicle which we received everything. For sure, when we saw that Kevin Klein film, it was like, oh, this is cool. I want to do this. I can remember three records in our house that we played all the time. One was Chipmunks Sing the Beatles. Yep. It actually helped us with harmony a lot. The other one was Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass, the one with the girl on it. In, Covered in whipped yeah, cream? Yeah, what was it? Her, a whipped cream and other delights. Okay, right. we had that one. And then we had uh, Mario Lanza record. Those things were such a huge influence on me. I don't know about Erica. So even for opera, I mean, even though we were around it and encouraged to listen to it, it was because of 
films like Pirates, Pirates of Penzance and this record that we happen to have that had Mario Lanz on it and that were like, oh, wow, that is a man voice. That's incredible. I want to do that. I mean, he was a pop artist more than he was an opera singer, even though he was operatically trained. It was those vehicles, those mass-produced things that were in our house that inspired us to want to do these things. You were one record away from becoming something totally else in life. (laughs) (laughs) We ended up playing all things brass in our house. Did you play Brass also? You played, right? You were trumpeter, right? we were in a trumpet trio together. That's right. I totally forgot that. I was not very good. Mike was excellent. My brother was actually so good at the trumpet that I ended up playing every other brass instrument that I could get my hands on because he embarrassed me so much one time with how good he was that I was like, (laughs) I'm never going to touch this thing again. That's it. I'm going to play the trombone, the tuba, and that's what I did. So in a way, I guess Herb Alpert really did have a lasting influence through my high school years, at least. So now I want to know how the chipmunks played into it. No, 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 that's okay. And for our astute listeners who heard you both have the same last name, I don't know if we said brother and sister, Erica and Sean. Yes, brother and sister. I'm the eldest Spires. My sister is the youngest, and we have a brother who is currently somewhere in Europe singing opera. That's what he does full time. And for people taking notes, what was the street you grew up on and your first job? No, no. No more information on you guys. That's good. Don't want to steal your identity. Erica, you suggested this, though, not just because you had two brothers that were involved in the opera world, but because you thought this was relevant to pop culture. Brian has already just brought up the fact that opera sometimes appears in pop culture things. And certainly there are a few opera-related things that Pavarotti was as famous as any pop star in his day. Where were you coming from in suggesting this as a good topic for us? We talked in our very first episode a bit about highbrow and lowbrow culture. We talked about what actually makes something pop. And there's a whole genre of operatic music that is kind of catered towards the pop side. And I guess what started me thinking about this was earlier this year, my husband and I went to Northern Ireland and we stayed with this man in his Airbnb. And he was like, oh, I love classical music. And he showed us these pop classical musicians. Mm -hmm. For example, Andrea Bocelli would be one of them, or uh, Il Divo. I guess even the three tenors might get into that a little bit. Eventually, I was like, oh, so you like opera? And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I showed him some of our brother's solo album, and he liked it, and he was impressed by it. But there was a point at which he thought, well, does he have anything I've heard of before? Is there anything except for the arias? Are there any songs? And it, you know, it just got me thinking about, like, there's this whole genre of what people call opera or they call classical music that is rather foreign to me, but it makes up a huge percentage of what people listen to when they listen to classical music. In the United States, how does that influence what we consider pop? And the people who actually consider opera as more highbrow, how do they view these kinds of crossover artists, I guess? So I thought, well, who better to ask about this stuff than my brother who runs an opera company in the Ozarks, which is number one amazing that we have one here in Springfield, Missouri. It's population. How big is this city? The metro area is probably pressing around half a million, but I think it's 250, 260. To have an opera company, and we've had an opera company in this city for how many years now? 40 years. 40 years. So for that to keep on going throughout the years, it's something that we were in as kids. Sean also, outside of running the opera company and singing opera, 
sings church music and he sings a wide range of music at church, mostly like a lot of just like folk songs. Social justice tunes. That's about it. Yeah. And he teaches musical theater. And so I was like, well, that's a person who kind of bridges all of those things, both pop and opera wise. You're talking about like these Bocelli types and Josh Groban and this kind of crossover into pop culture. That is probably the least interesting aspect of, I think, anything that I could think of around this. And it's not because they're not, some of them, you know, Bocelli is classically trained. I don't know. I just don't find any interesting content in it. If these people are going to be singing arias that I've heard sung a thousand times better by somebody who can actually speak the language or whatever else, that is of no interest to me. But it is of interest to the general public. For me right now, there's like one aria, one classical piece that I think that makes people happy or excited. And that's uh, Nessun Dorma Nessun from Turandot. And you all know that? I've seen that opera, but I don't know if I know that aria. Sing it's the little, one that ends with that vincero at the end, you know? I mean, it, it became really popularized by Pavarotti with the three tenors. I mean, it, it's just... And I say that... Oh, we're going into the third act of the movie. Gotcha. All right. You're making me cry. <laughs> our, our protagonist is facing a crisis. Yeah, with you. <laughs> right. I've noticed this because anytime somebody shares anything that is opera on Facebook or anything else, for the most part, it is always this aria. It is this thing. It touches some part of their heart. And it doesn't matter if it's, you know, Paul Potts singing it on Britain's Got Talent or whatever else it was. Or Pol Pot. You know, Pol Pot was on Pol, Pol, Britain's Pol Got Talent. Pot. I don't know. He might have been in an opera. I don't know. Dictators are, you know, they look kind of like that elite thing. So maybe he, he was. I don't know what access Pol Pot had to classical music there. I can't talk too much about. That's okay. That's just, that was like my entry on point on it. It was, that's what got me thinking about why is this even important to people if. It's like a watered down version, but I suppose you could say the same thing for movies. You know, there's these movies that are considered high art. I don't. It, it seems like this operatic pop gets dumped on by two kinds of snobbiness. That since the Beatles, if you're just a singer and not a songwriter, like, eh, you're not a serious artistic individual. There's been a great resurgence, I think, with all the voice shows and things like, no, people can just have wonderful voices and that should be enough. You're still an artistic creator by doing something that is really impressive with your voice. And on the other hand, we're hearing from the opera world that no, 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 the pop opera people, they're doing some degraded thing as opposed to the opera house three hour full version. So it seems like they lose from both ends. I absolutely agree with you because I see just from my point of view is I'm often, my brother would say the same thing, we are bored by opera. It's not something that we listen to. I mean, it is our jobs. You know, a lot of time when something is your job, it's not something that you consume just passively as you're in the car or whatever. But even just attending operas, I've seen one in my lifetime where I was enthralled the entire time. The rest of them I could kind of do without. And I think that doesn't have anything to say about opera. It's the way it's being produced. I mean, the difference between, really, for me, since I work with a lot of musical theater students, between musical theater and opera is musical theater does put the emphasis more on the story and on the words, and opera puts it more on the tone, the line, so you keep the beautiful sounds coming out. But, I mean, really, it's a balance between those that, that has to happen. And very few people in the operatic world do it right. Very few people in the musical theater world do it right. 
either somebody is way too emotionally connected and the tone suffers, or somebody is just working so hard to make sure that their tone is beautiful and they're not telling a story. Like, I, honestly, I'm bored to death watching old Pavarotti recordings. I, I don't want to see another one in my life. And I know that sounds weird because, I mean, he's kind of considered the standard of the last 50 years, but it's incredibly boring to me. And I think for us, the stuff that we are doing here in the Ozarks, and, you know, my brother, he does opera all over the world, but he is passionate about the stuff that we're doing here because he wants to keep doing these types of, well, we're doing Pagliacci and we're doing more and more stuff where we're doing this kind of show within the show where we show, and even next year we're looking at doing Ariadne of Naxos, where basically we are putting on display, showing them it is highbrow and it is lowbrow. It, it is all of these things at once, and it can be so much more. It's something that demands a lot out of your listener, and I think that's why it can be, not only do you have to be educated, you have to be listening and engaged. You can't just passively sit back like you can sometimes at a symphony or at a film and just kind of let it wash over you. You have to be paying attention. It's a little hard to know as a novice consumer what exactly you're supposed to be appreciating. At the opera, right? Because in a musical, it's pretty clear. You're following a narrative, and yeah, the jets and sharks break out into song, but you're still, you're watching a story, and it's a modern, or modern at the time, Romeo and Juliet with a bunch of singing going on that, you know, hits the highs and lows musically in ways that maybe you couldn't just through acting, or maybe you could. But at the opera, am I supposed to really be following the libretto and understanding the story, or am I supposed to be immersing myself in just the beauty of performance, you know, I, I feel like looking at movies that where people are appreciating opera, whether it's Moonstruck or uh, Shawshank Redemption, when Andy Dufresne puts it on and they don't know the story. In fact, even Red says he doesn't know what the woman is singing about, but they're all kind of overwhelmed by the beauty of it. And this rare thing, especially in, you know, this dark place that they're all in, I don't necessarily want to be focused on the words in a book or being projected above the proscenium. I just want to Enjoy the music. I, I treat it much more like a concert-going experience. Again, I agree with you that if I was going to a film, I'm not a person who ever goes to a movie and doesn't do any research. I don't just blindly go into a film and be like, you know, what's this? Really? Oh, no, no I think I don't. that's the best way to watch films sometimes, to I be don't. completely surprised. Yeah, I'm with you, Erica. I go in completely cold. I don't. I find <laughs> that weird, guys. Opera stories are something that they're bigger-than-life stories. When it's done right, I think you should be able to follow the narrative better. But you're absolutely right that opera does, and as an opera singer, as an opera producer, it is our beauty to bring beauty into a chaotic world, into a frustrating world, give people, you know, that time out of body. It's like that meditation type of a thing where everybody is just focused on the beauty of the sound that is coming out of the most expressive instrument on the planet and carrying over an orchestra and transporting us, I don't know, to another time, but something that, you know, where time moves a little bit differently. Maybe that's how we can think about opera in terms of pop culture, because right now I feel like meditation is a huge thing. I think that's right. Like the last opera I saw was, I think I saw our brother Michael in Philadelphia, and he did like a three and a half hour opera, which is pretty typical. And I just sat there and thought to myself, I know this is going to be long, I know I might get bored and I had a drink, so hopefully I don't fall asleep. Okay, I had a couple drinks. But I actually did find it very meditative and I didn't care that it moved along slowly. I just kind of let it sweep over me. And that seems to be something that maybe it's just because it's targeted, but I see a lot of Instagram ads about like meditation, things like headspace and calm and 
things to like focus your time. Yeah. Yeah. Mindfulness. Yeah. Yeah. Mindfulness. Exactly. So maybe opera is falling more into a mindfulness category now than entertainment because there's so much out there that's exciting in terms of entertainment. And I don't know that operas, I mean, it can be exciting, but maybe it's more mindfulness. So that's an interesting modern appropriation or reinterpretation of how to experience opera. Maybe you can clarify the historical point to me. I'd heard that, you know, these three and a half hour operas that when they were originally produced a few hundred years ago, it really wasn't the intent that everybody would sit there starkly just paying attention to it. That it really was a people wandering in and out. It's kind of a party atmosphere. It's like, here's something that's going on, kind of like a band playing at a club. And the way that the libretto is structured, for instance, there's so much repetition and kind of like, this is why you might not even need the libretto a lot of times if you just have, you read in the program kind of what it's about or what what's going on in general in this scene. And it doesn't even matter so much exactly what's being said at this moment. You're not paying attention to it that way. You're paying attention to it more like a concert. You're absolutely right. And if you look at those opera houses, uh, you know, from when opera started, the way they were set up, the richer people, you know, the richer patrons would congregate down below and they would eat and drink and when their favorite song came on they would basically all shut up and they would turn and listen to the beauty then they go back to schmoozing and eating and drinking these were real small opera houses like how many people the largest european opera houses are top 2000 where the met is 3000 but the majority of them are much smaller, and it wasn't really until Wagner came around and he changed how people viewed opera. He wanted people to shut up. He dimmed the lights. He tucked the orchestra under the stage, and he really made it a spectacle, so people had to watch it. But even the houses that they were performing his operas in are not near as big as what you have this day and age. So was it considered more popular culture at that time, before Wagner, and then post-Wagner? It was less popular culture and it became more highbrow? Or was it always an elitist thing? No, it wasn't an always elitist thing. I mean, even if you look at Vienna, they have a, a Volksoper, and they have the People's Opera, and they have the Staatsoper, the, st- the State Opera House. What does that actually mean? Like, it was actually opera for well, yeah, I mean, I mean, commoners? You, you, you even look at, you know, Mozart. I mean, his most famous marriage of Figaro. Most people know that, of course, it came from a play. Operas do often come from a story or a play. But it was all set up to poke fun at the rich folk. And again, this was before Netflix, so this was something that everybody could enjoy in some way or another. You know, even Monteverdi, his uh, Orfeo, it was in the early 17th century, he used commoners often in his productions that could sing a little bit, but I mean, it didn't require like the most incredible opera singer. It was for the people. The uh, movie Amadeus, there's a scene where Mozart is making a case to have his opera written in German, presumably so it could be consumed by the masses. It's really hard to think that these classical works were just contemporary things, but of course everything is contemporary when it's written. So to be writing for the masses and the emperor at the same time, I mean, that Mm -hmm. seems like a really big task, but gosh, if Mozart wasn't up to it, I suppose nobody was. (laughs) Even if it was the emperor, like I don't know how well-versed he was in music necessarily at the time. You know, It's oftentimes that I think people who think they know about something in like a very highbrow way actually might not have much information at all. They just, they like to feel like they're fancy, which I think is one of the funny things about opera is when people go and they like to feel fancy, but they don't really get, maybe they don't even like it, but they like how it looks when they go. Yeah. And I mean, that's probably a large portion of why I get ticket sales here in Springfield is because people are just 
oh, it's the opera. Let's get dressed up. And they have a, a wonderful time. Just even if we didn't have that great of a production, it's just that idea of going to the opera is, wow. You know, this is actually thematic for a different podcast, which is just bullshitting as pop culture. It'll, <laughs> it'll be mostly about wine tasting, I think, but we'll figure it out. Oh, I'm in. There's an article that I had found called Expecting Rain Opera as Popular Cultural by John Story. I'll link people to it that tells this historical story related to what we're talking about. One of the things that didn't really get emphasized enough in our episode one on pop culture versus high culture is this purposefully separating the two as a way to sort of make yourself feel fancy. There's a Partially Examined Life episode on this on Pierre Bourdieu's distinction, which is brought up in this article John Story has this picture that opera was invented by the nobles as a way of trying to recreate ancient Greek theater. It spread out so that it became like the popular art form, like in the Amadeus period. But then there was a conscious effort to turn opera into high culture. It had to be withdrawn from the everyday world of popular entertainment. And he says that there are a few different strategies to this. Yeah, between 1825 and 1850, elite social groups in New York developed three overlapping social strategies which gradually separated opera from the everyday world of popular entertainment. Building specifically for the performance of opera and keep the ticket prices high. Work to sharpen and objectify a code of behavior, including a dress code that would just rule out a lot of the lower class folks. And insist that only foreign language opera could meet the standards of excellence. Standards upheld by behavior and criticism employing foreign words and specialized language. Yeah, a conscious attempt to make this inaccessible. So it's not just a matter of fashion, it's sociological manipulation. It's interesting to hear that in a time right now where we are doing everything that we can. Every other word that comes out of my mouth is accessibility, is making it accessible to, and probably any other arts administrator or opera producer would be saying the same thing. With symphonies dying out, with classical music really not being looked at anymore or listened to. Everybody is trying to make it more accessible, whether throwing John Williams in the concert, adding a jazz singer into the opera gala. We are seeing our older people that supplied all this money. They're all just dying. And when they die, they often leave a wonderful gift, but they can't keep giving. And so Every arts organization is really trying to find a way to make it more accessible, to reach more people. But the problem is the majority of us right now have not been able to reach those Gen Xers. I mean, you know, the young professionals who are making money, they just don't give. They will attend things, but it, more often than not, it's a rock concert. And when they're giving, more often than not, it's to something good like breast cancer or whatever. But across the board, arts are having a tough time finding donors and people who want to consume this art form because just like anything else, I mean, but you see that with film also, you know. My brother is good friends with uh, Terry Gilliam. Terry Gilliam has directed at least two operas that Mike has been in, and Mike has been the star. Mike just met with Terry recently, and he was just, he's upset because he wanted people to see his film in the theater. It's not that he's not getting to make more movies. It's like he just wanted people to see his film to go to the theater and see it. So it's happening here with film also. People are able to consume from safely from their home. Well, when I talk to Terry, I'll be sure to let him know that I saw The Fisher King <laughs> and Baron Munchausen in the theater. 
clearly with opera, that's just right. a weird thing. People just aren't going to do it. There you go. It's a bit of like the dumbing down of pop culture. You know, when we talked in our first episode about the more that we accept things, like everything as being art, the lower our bar is. So it's interesting to think about how it's affecting everybody across the board in an artistic realm. And Sean, how far are you willing to go with getting people in the door? Looking at the three things that Mark talked about to keep people away who are the wrong kind of people. I mean, I say this because I agree with you that it's good to make it accessible, but like at a visceral level, when I go to the symphony and someone shows up wearing a baseball hat and sweatpants, it's like, well, yeah, it's great that you came in the door, but it's like, come on, man, put some clothes on. I will tell you this, here in the Ozarks, at one of the symphony concerts, a guy came in in bib overalls and a MAGA hat. I'm not kidding, he wore it through the entire show. <laughs> we have less expensive tickets. When people call in and they say, you know, what is dress? I'll say business casual. For the most part, I really do want to get people into the opera. The types of opera that we're doing here... And my brother really does have a vision of being able to, even his latest big project, which is Pagliacci, instead of doing Cavaliere Rusticana for the first half of it, like it is normally performed, he has written an entire vaudeville show that talks about the history of vaudeville on Route 66. So I guess to make this short, I don't see a problem at all with anybody at all attending. And, I, you know, maybe that's, I, where do you live? I am in a, a much fancier place than you. I am in St. Louis, Missouri. So, <laughs> <laughs> Still, that's not the Ozarks. It's completely different. You have a little bit more of an established arts base there. We don't. And we are able to have you know, a ballet, an opera company, a really good community theater, and a symphony because we don't have to pay union scale here. If we had to pay what you know you guys were doing up there, I don't think we could survive in that way. But honestly, I'll give away tickets. I want people to attend the opera. I want them to see what we are doing. He always gives away tickets. Too many tickets. I just want people in. I want them to see what we're doing. You're like Walmart. You run a sweatshop opera and <laughs> to make it cheap for consumers. Is that what I'm hearing? We're a family. I mean, we're just used to doing all of it. Mom builds costumes. Dad will throw them both on stage to act if there's a small thing. We're small. It's the way we learned it. Mom forced us at a young age to throw shows together, so that's what we're doing. Throwing shows together. That's it. Just throwing opera together now. There's somebody in my neighborhood that occasionally does, they do opera out of their garage just for the neighborhood. Make sets in their garage and have a piano and have a couple of really good opera singers and set up chairs on their driveway, and then you can just hear it neighborhood That's fantastic. <laughs> have you attended? I wandered by one of them. It was some sort of Hansel and Gretel thing. I honestly couldn't stand oh, yeah. it for more than a few seconds. But their way of making it accessible to everybody is it's a children's story. I think that's when I saw most of the opera I've seen is like field trips as a kid or my parents taking me as a kid, you know, of the four times or something total that I've seen. Did you ever see Peter and the Wolf? I saw that at the uh, Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and they kind of explained it as it was one of those things. They went along and explaining the themes that related to the different people in the story. It was really neat. Education and accessibility to families of young kids is still important. I mean, the most performed opera, I think, of all time now is The Magic Flute. It's Mozart's The Magic Flute because of the fantastical story, the dragons, everything else. Kids are able to sit through it and, and be like, oh, you know, there's a dragon. Oh, I that lady's singing really high. Sean did the magic flute in college, and they did like a sci-fi version of it. Like a Star Wars, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And that's another way I think that sometimes is successful and sometimes not where opera tries to feel like, how can we like be cool? How can we like get into the sci-fi kids, get them to come and watch it? Sometimes successful, sometimes not. I think you got to just tell stories any way you can. <laughs> but that's all the classics in all their forms, right? Of people putting on Shakespeare with modern dictators rather than classical dictator just because or resetting them in the modern time whatever it is it's just to make something more accessible to get them in the door again your pop culture podcast it's like the things that we've you know been talking about for the most part we're just trying to find a way I, unless you're on tv you know minotti kind of popularized opera for a while when his amal on the night visitors premiered on what was it nbc or cbs back in the 60s you have to get on tv to reach the masses and I don't know if that's ever going to to happen. It's happening in movie theaters now, right? So we have Metropolitan Opera Live. And it's very unpopular. Is it really unpopular? Yes. But they're still doing it after all this time. Is it? Are they just like losing money on that? They're getting funding for someone. I don't it, know. It angers up my blood that they're charging me for the same price for a recorded version of it later as live <laughs> at the time. It's like, come on, man, this is a rerun. Don't be like that. <laughs> It is different. I don't care how good the video and audio is. It's not the same visceral experience as some, having somebody spit near you as they're singing a high note. So I have this article, 14 Artists Who Are Transforming the Future of Opera. And the article is from 2014. Scanning through it, it's like, experimental extended vocal techniques, operatic bell canto, found objects, text, and sampled sounds, operate somewhere in the space between traditional opera and YouTube videography, an interdisciplinary artist whose work she classifies as embodied hybrids of installation art, film, and experimental theater. I don't think any of these things transform the future of opera. Like these are sort of one-off, sticky, you know, once you're in sort of the weird art world, anything goes. So like including opera as part of that, as one of the classical sources you're drawing on, that totally makes sense. But it seems like opera is so rooted in a tradition that there is no way to transform the future of opera because, you know, it's like transforming the future of symphonic music. Like maybe people in 1920 thought that like what they were doing was going to transform the future of symphonic music, but no, symphonic music is still pretty much <laughs> like playing stuff from the, the 18th century, etc. That's why a lot of people think that opera needs to die in a way so it can be reborn into something else. There are several people writing on with symphonies how it is a ancient patriarchal system that we need to do away with. I understand these arguments to some degree. I do, being in the arts, but I can't stand listening to cover bands. I had a very successful cover band, Sean. <laughs> sorry. God. Fight. Uh, Fight. <laughs> oh, sorry. Continue. But at the same time, it's not like I'm really I'm doing a cover band with my opera, doing all these operas that are 300 years old. I really don't have an answer for it. Probably for it to become in the pop culture again, it has to die away. So can you think of one opera in the past 50 years that you know the title of? Written in the past 50 years? No, no, certainly yeah. not. Well, what are your standards for being an opera? I mean, I don't think we've actually ever defined it, so what makes something not an opera or to frame it the other way. Traditionally, it's been any story that has been sung through. I had made the suggestion that these Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals that are sung the whole way through, why is Evita not an opera? Other than a couple announcements over the radio, every line is sung. Is it not an opera? 
Right, or Phantom of the Opera or Les Mis. For me, it comes down to vocal technique, or sorry, the style of singing. The type of singing that is done traditionally with that kind of more, I'm trying to think of a singer who I could, not Bocelli so much, but the technique is different. The style is a little bit different. It is all used with the microphone, which is, I'm not putting down people that use microphones. The most recent one I did was Seeker Garden, which is kind of itself semi-operatic. The approach that I would take to singing something like that, which is, I'm trying to think of one of the, oh, um, Bit of earth, she wants a little bit of earth, she'll plant some seeds, the seeds will grow. I'm putting more emphasis on the words where if I was singing the opera, and if I sing that breath, a lot more it? operatically, a bit of earth, she wants a little bit of earth, she'll plant There's just a difference in style right there and technique that that is the only difference that really, so that's why I would not classify Andrew Lloyd Webber's music as operatic. It's right kind of right there, but the, for the most part, the people that sing it are not opera singers, so I cannot say that it's opera. I would also say maybe the style that the audience wants is different. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they don't want to hear that opera voice. You're right. A few singers have been able to do that. There are some crossover singers who have been fairly successful, but very, very few. Last year, I did a show with Renee Fleming, but we were doing Carousel, so it's a lot more of an operatic-type score. And people came literally just to see Renee Fleming sing You'll Never Walk Alone. Right, and she really stood out in a way. She was just different. It was like, oh, you're a different color than everyone else. What is this? But even if you look at musical theater, which is kind of the new opera or whatever, if you look at the voices, the voices that people want to hear, the men voices, the majority of them, they've got this boyish-like sound. Like, who's the guy in uh, Waving... Through the window. What is that musical? Oh, uh, Dear Evan Hansen. And uh, what's um, the guy um, in Dear Evan Hansen? He's in everything, and he's got his own album and everything. Yeah, there. he was just on the Today Show. It's with ben, ben Platt. Ben Platt. It's a very boyish voice that those people consuming musicals want right now. Whereas if you look back to you know Rodgers and Hammerstein when John Raitt. Yeah, yeah. You look back to John Raitt and those other singers. That was like a, a man voice. And you know, Mario Lanza. It was a man voice. I remember hearing that. I was like, oh, that's a man. I want to sing like that. It really is changing because the people that are attending these events, that's what they want. So I don't really have a dog in the fight. I'm just saying that's where it is. I think that maybe like if you had something like if it wasn't like Justin Timberlake, who had been one of the most famous pop singers in the last several years, Justin Timberlake and Michael Jackson have, I think, probably influenced what musical theater is rather than opera influencing musical theater. Absolutely. Right? So they want that pop sound. And Absolutely. If we had a pop singer that was super legit sounding, we might see a little bit of a difference. I mean, Josh Groban kind of came close, but he's, yeah. he really kind of sings in a more pop hybrid than he does in an opera. But he, you know, there's nobody else really like Josh Groban. There's nobody even close to him in the pop world. That's I mean, true. Well, that's why it's so interesting to hear you do that fairly subtle move from the opera voice to the merely heavy vibrato pop voice because Josh Groban goes between those as well and so it just depends you know even just I was looking at what operatic pop oh Il Divo that's the biggest one you know their most popular songs like no they're just singing pop but it really just depends on what song they're doing, which part of the song even, that the verse could be pop, and then they launch into a big, you know, uh, harmonized operatic <laughs> wall. You know, there's nothing about, especially is that style of singing maybe still more in fashion or has the potential to be more in fashion in Italy, in other countries? You know, if it's not an accident, so many rock and pop bands that like maybe are even having some trouble in the English speaking world, like they go to Japan and they, they're, 
big because like everything is sort of equally foreign. So I would think maybe the Japanese audiences might not find the opera voice as weird and off-putting as they, you know, if they're singing in English that English speakers would. Weird and off-putting. Harsh, man. <laughs> <laughs> but I see, how often do you see an opera singer or a potential opera singer win one of these contests, whether it's America's Got Talent or wherever else? Quite often, they're like right at the top or they end up winning. It does stir people. It moves them. People are voting for these people. People really do appreciate that beauty and that wonderment that is in, in that voice. But an opera as a, a vehicle, we have not found a way to bring that to the masses other than on these America's Got Talent or whatever else. I think sometimes on those talent shows that it's an appreciation for the technical skill as well. I think you can't hide behind any kind of shenanigans as an opera singer the way and pop you often can, it's all out there. And if you are not perfect, it shows in a really obvious sort of way. So I think that's sometimes what's being responded to. I'll be curious to see if the way opera develops, if the way it, if you think it will, or if it must, if getting away from the singing style, but maybe keeping some of the other themes of opera might be a way that it persists in the future. Talking about Mark's article and changes and how things develop, they don't always develop in a way that is intentional. Just things evolve. And the blues sort of became rock and roll, and there wasn't one thing, but it was a couple people who were doing things a little differently. And no one knew it was really happening at the time, but all of a sudden it was something that came from nothing or evolved out of something else. And those early music, if you listen to some of those, there's an title, Early Music Singers, that we have. They sing with much less vibrato. It's the same style that I was just singing in with that kind of new musical theater. There's just, there's more straight tone to it. And it's not about you locking into the sound so you can carry over the audience at all times because the early music in some of those early operas, Messiah. it was not so heavily orchestrated. So your voice could carry over the top of it when the orchestras got out front instead of being tucked under. We had to have these bigger voices when we have 3000 seat houses. We needed a Caruso to carry over those things because they didn't have the microphones. And so we have better and better mics. We have better and better speakers. I think maybe one way for opera, if it's going to die out and make itself again, is the fact that the voice itself might have to change a little bit, become an even stronger hybrid, like somebody like Michael, who has an amazing voice, who can sing like high Fs and low Fs. That's effing awesome. But can also... Sing different styles. Yeah, sing different styles. Well, not to go back to my what I know very well, but fortunately, science fiction tells us what will become of opera. So we don't need to worry. Just look to uh, the year 2263 and the fifth element. If you remember the diva, a giant blue alien, they're going to be hitting notes we can't. I know that that was taken from, it was sampled from an opera. I don't know which one it was sampled from, the line that she's actually singing. That's a lot of the times what opera singers, they think of what it could become, something like that. I don't really know. We don't have anything out there like that. And, I, you know, I could probably could have come in and shared new opera with you. But you know what? It's not being consumed. That doesn't mean that it's good. It's just I'm a person who has always been interested in film. I mean, that's how I got things as a kid. I'll never forget when we got WGN for the first time in the early 80s. I became a Cubs fan Instantly, because Harry Carey and Steve Stone were there, and the and the camera was great, and I could see it, and I was like, and I, it was like I was there, and I was like, forget about the Cardinals. I watched every Cubs game, and then in the mornings we got to watch Bozo the Clown and Soul Train came on, and I was like, oh my god, what is this? 
And it was all because I had access to that. People do have access to this stuff now, but I think really it's being on TV in those big markets. That's where we have to reach and the opera has to reach. And that's what we need to do. I just don't know. Yeah, you don't know in what, what form and what format. And, you know, musicals have started to do more live musicals now, which is really great. And some people love them. Some people are very critical of them. But I think ultimately it's a really great thing to have that stuff back on TV because when I was a kid, I remember watching the Cinderella that had been on TV and Into the Woods and there weren't that many that were up for consumption and now we have so much more available to us. And it's really cool because you can see people do things that maybe normal people can't do. And I think that's one thing that opera really appeals to is these super high notes and super low notes and super loud notes that a normal person just doesn't know how to produce. And maybe that's where it has a space too with YouTube and stuff because people love seeing things that are just like vaudeville, like a sideshow, like what's weird and crazy and different. In the old days, it's like Harry Carey doing opera on one channel, Bozo and Cookie doing opera on another channel. It just wasn't enough choices. (laughs) I want to hear an opera version of Take Me Out to the Ball Game. That'll be. I'm sure it's happened. One thing I think that opera doesn't have going for it is that with good technique, and this can go with about anything, when you're like really, really good at something, it doesn't look hard anymore. You know, so like ballerinas, it looks so easy when you see a really great ballerina. But I think there's so much of our culture that is like, we want to see people struggle. And so when you make something look and sound easy, it doesn't seem nearly as impressive as when you see somebody struggling and you're like, are they going to hit it? Are they going to hit it? And then they do or they don't sometimes. I don't know. I think that's an interesting phenomenon that we somehow we want to see that struggle. I think that's why I like musical theater, because it's all about let's see you struggle with something. And if you crack, use it. Whereas with opera, if you crack, it's I don't think people like that so much. (laughs) Yeah, F plus. (laughs) Well, if people were excited about seeing Struggle, I think this was a good episode for them to listen to of us trying to do justice to this topic, and we should stop. (laughs) 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 Thank you so much, Sean, for coming on and enlightening us. Thanks, Sean. It was really good to meet you. Thank you so much. So long, everybody. We're going to keep talking for the supporter audio, so folks can go to patreon.com slash pretty much pop if they want to hear that. Thanks. Bye. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.